Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the freedom we have to gather together publicly for worship, Lord. Uh, We rejoice in your delight in public worship. And Lord, we ask that you would stir in our hearts a greater affection for it and needfulness for public worship, that we would be uh, one of those rare churches full of believers who love the Lord's day uh, because you are the Lord of the day. And so we ask for Dr. Turboville as he prepares to preach two times this morning, standing for lengthy periods of time, would you strengthen his back and his legs? Lord, would you give him a sharpness of mind that the pain would not interfere with his clarity of thinking or speaking? We ask that you would bring your word powerfully through him into our hearts, Lord, as he speaks as one who's been affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who need to be touched by your word. We ask that you would guide us in our discussion this morning on this great portion of Paul's letter to the Romans and help us to think well about it, Lord. Uh, In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, Romans chapter 9 is actually kind of difficult to divide up into into two chunks. As you know, we've been going through Romans uh, in two parts each chapter. Last week was kind of a unique standoff. It was sort of an introduction to these three chapters, which historically have been understood as a sort of parenthesis in Paul's writing, a sort of an excursus. He's dealing with uh, the the topic of predestination, for example, or the the question about Israel. And those things are true. He deals with them. But I want to take a moment to talk about how this section, uh, especially the beginning of chapter 9, is directly connected to what came right before it in chapter 8. But as I said, it's difficult to break up this chapter. And so we're going to go through uh, verse 13 this morning, and I'll leave the rest of the chapter for uh, whoever's teaching next Sunday. Uh, But let me read Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13 for us in order to orient us to the text. And then we'll talk about some of these connections that I think are important. You'll see them in your handout at the top of page one, uh, as well as get through the actual details of the text. Also, Rufus let me know uh, what a total and utter failure I am this morning. He said, everybody else has had a PowerPoint. Uh, He did not say it like that, Uh, but I apologize. So you're just going to have to listen to my voice and look at your notes and perhaps stare across the table at someone Uh, that you care about. This is the word of God. Uh, Let's listen to it carefully together. Romans chapter 9, verse 1, Paul, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. <clears throat> Amen. Well, this text, I believe, quite plainly connects to the previous eight chapters, in fact. Uh, Paul introduces the gospel of God, which is the power of God unto salvation in chapter 1, and then begins uh, unpacking its relationship to both Jew and Gentile, uh, specifically as we understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone in chapters 4 and 5, most especially. And then he does have a little sidebar in chapters 6 and 7 as it relates to sin. Um, there's this uh, question that he poses, what shall we say then? Right? Because of all this glorious truth of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, does that give us freedom to sin? Can we go around doing whatever we want now because God has redeemed us because of the blood of Christ and not because of works of the law? And how does he answer that question? By no means, right? God forbid, he says. Uh, and he does this throughout uh, Romans in dealing with various subcategories under the bigger overarching category of the gospel of God, which is the power of God to salvation. So it seems like here in chapters 9, 10, and 11 uh, that he takes a sudden detour. Uh, he gets done in chapter 8 dealing with questions of uh, election and justification and glorification, that ordo salutis. Uh, the great doctrines of, of our salvation according to the work of God. He tells us about the perseverance of the saints in verses 37 through 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And some people read this as sort of the first ending of Romans. Romans 1 through 8, it's all doctrine. And, and Romans 9 through 16, it's all practicum. Uh, and I don't think that that's true. I think that Paul is really here in 9, 10, and 11 especially... Uh, answering another one of these imaginary questions that he has been answering throughout the book of Romans. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? That's an imaginary question. He is, he's putting himself in the shoes of someone reading his letter and going, okay, Paul, I like this justification by faith alone. Okay, that makes sense to me. So that means we can go on sinning because of justification, right? And he answers that question in chapter 6 and somewhat in chapter 7. Now in chapter 8, he talks about the predestining work of God. And in verses 8, 20, verse 8, 28, he says, All things work together for good who those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Great, that must be us, the Israelites, right? Why does it seem then that we've been cut off? It feels like we've been cut off. That's what you've been telling us. You're talking about all these other people who are being brought in, the Gentiles. You dealt with that in chapters 2 and 3. And so it seems like if Romans eight twenty eight is true then why are we not experiencing the love of God also? And so I think what Paul's doing here is he's answering an imaginary interlocutor, a questioner, someone who steps into the conversation from outside and says, what you're saying is causing me some trouble. Uh, this section is not simply about predestination, in other words. It is about that, but it's about that as it relates to Paul answering the question, what happened to us? If God's faithful, it kind of feels like his word has failed, right? Look at the top of your notes. That's the key verse from this section. But the word of God has not failed. 
And so Paul is answering the question, and in order to do it, he has to talk about predestination. He has to talk about God's relationship with the nation of Israel, with the ethnic Israelites. He deals with that very plainly. Now, I don't take the position, as some in certain camps do, that every time Paul says Israel in Romans 9, 10, 11, he's talking about ethnic Israel. It's a really short-sighted interpretation. In fact, one of the first times he mentions them here in the beginning, he says that that's simply not true. Not all Israel is Israel. So he can't be taking that position. We can't adopt that conclusion about his interaction here with the question of Israel. But obviously they're in view. So he is going to talk about Israel and their relationship to God, both now and in the future. But that's not the main point. He has to deal with it to answer the question. So one person has said that what Paul is doing in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is he's dealing with what we call a theodicy. So Martin Lloyd-Jones' definition of theodicy, you see that under point 3a there, it is a justification of the ways of God with respect to man. A theodicy, we, we often think of theodicy as really the question of evil, You'll hear that sometimes, theodicy is just the question of evil, and that's true. The question of evil is a theodicy. We are dealing with the question of how do we justify God's works as they relate to man when it seems to us like it doesn't make any sense. It seems to us like maybe the God's word has failed. It seems to us like God is out of control or not in control, I should say, and things are going bad, and he said that they won't. So that's what a theodicy is. Lloyd-Jones says this, I agree. What uh, Paul is doing here is he's saying, okay, you have a problem with what I've just got done saying based on your experience. It feels like you've been cut off. It feels like something new has happened and you guys are no longer a part of it. And I want to show you why this has always been the case. It's always been the case. This has always been the plan, and we'll see that as we go through these first 13 verses together. Uh, Number three, point B there, as Paul defends God's work in salvation, again, looking back at chapter 30, uh, those whom he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. As he deals with election and justification and glorification, he necessarily touches on questions of predestination, God's free will and his sovereign election the true Israel, the perseverance of the saints, and maybe most importantly here, the Old Testament as Christian scripture. Uh, One of the things that Paul is doing here, and we'll see this if you're skimming ahead in your notes down to um, the last section, the Bible tells me so, uh, you'll see that what Paul is doing is he's making his argument from the Hebrew scriptures that this has always been the plan of God, This has always been the way it was supposed to be. And so those who are pointing their finger at Paul and wagging it and going, you're denying what God has said all along. You're denying our relationship with him. He's saying, no, 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 you're misreading your Bibles. This has always been the plan. God's word has not failed. He's made this very, very clear. And we'll see that through at least two examples in these first 13 verses. (laughs) Let's look at verses one through three together. This is Paul's passion for his people. You can imagine Paul writing, penning Romans, and he ends chapter 8 with this marvelous expression of the glory of God in salvation. God is for us. Who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What wonderful truth that is. Everything in Christ is ours. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? 
No one. It's God who justifies. Who can condemn? No one. Jesus Christ is the one who died and was raised and is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who or what can anything separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? By no means, no, in all these things we're more than conquerors, he says. And then he gets to this moment where he pauses and thinks about what someone might say in response to that, what one of his brothers in the flesh might say in response to that. And they'll say, we sure feel separated from the love of God. It doesn't feel like these things are working together for our good. It feels like we've been cut off. You've told us earlier that all the stuff that we used to think, our circumcision and our law, accounts for nothing. So what's the deal, Paul? Have we really been lost because of this? Has God broken his promises with us? And you can imagine the anguish that Paul must have experienced in even wrestling with this question. Listen to how he says it. He gives us this five-fold expression of the seriousness with which he takes the question that he's uh, imagining someone poses. Look at, I speak the truth. He says, first of all, what I'm saying is absolutely true. Make no mistake, I am speaking the truth. So much am I willing to communicate to you the seriousness with which I'm saying these words. So true is what I'm saying that I'm willing to say it like this. I speak the truth in Christ. Now, I don't think what Paul is saying here is because I'm a Christian, because I'm in Christ, what I say is true. I think what he's saying is before the face of God, I'm making this statement to you. In view of Christ, in view of Christ hearing me say this and knowing that you're listening to me, I'm speaking the truth. And then he says it in the opposing way negatively, I'm not lying. Anybody ever catch your kid doing something they're not supposed to do? Have you heard this before? No, 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 I'm telling the truth. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. You know, you hear them like kind of over-exaggerate how much they want you to believe them. And in some cases, you know that they're, they're not telling the truth. Uh, but sometimes you make a mistake when you look at your child and you see them doing something and you think that they're doing something they shouldn't. And they try desperately to communicate to you how true they're being and how much you should believe them. You can almost hear that in Paul's voice. I'm speaking the truth. I'm saying this before the face of God. I am not lying. And not only that, my conscience bears witness. Now, our conscience, our conscience is that internal voice that God gives us to tell us when we're doing something we shouldn't, right? Um, someone once said, it's never wise to go against conscience. Uh, beyond that, our conscience almost always speaks negatively to us. It almost always tells us when we're doing something wrong. Like, should I touch that? And that little voice goes, don't do that. Very rarely does it go, yeah, go ahead. That's, you know, what, your conscience is there to slow you down from sin, to keep you from doing things you shouldn't do. It's, it's given to us by God. Now, we can sear our conscience, right? We can do things that weaken the voice of our conscience and silence it. But Paul is saying here, not only am I telling the truth before God, not only am I not lying, but even my conscience, there's not even a, a whisper of it telling me, Paul, you're making this up. You're making this up. And now what does he say about his conscience? It bears me witness, how? In the Holy Spirit. It's not, it's not an unsanctified conscience that I have that willingly lets me get away with lying. This is a sanctified conscience in the Holy Spirit that says to me, Paul, what you're saying is true. Paul has no doubt whatsoever that what he's about to say to this questioner, this person who has a concern with his doctrine, is absolutely true. Take it to the bank. 
It's very serious. Not only is it very serious, but he is very grieved. He says, I, I don't want you guys to think that all the stuff I'm saying is because I hate Jewish people. How can I? They're my own people according to the flesh, he says. And not only that, I'm telling you the truth, I am so overwhelmingly in sorrow and unceasingly in anguish in the core of my being. That's how serious he is. That's how much he loves his people according to the flesh. His kinsmen, his brothers, he calls them in verse 3. That's how much he loves them. And he, look, all of the accusations that the New Testament gets about being anti-Semitic, you can't conclude that after reading Paul here, who himself was uh, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, from the tribe of Benjamin, all those things that he articulates about himself in Philippians. He loved his people. He loved his people. And he's writing to them not to condemn them, but in order to draw them to Christ. There's nothing anti-Semitic about Paul's instruction in the New Testament concerning the relationship between God and Israel. He says, be part of the church. Come in. Get grafted in. I'm, I'm, uh, from the bottom of my heart with unceasing anguish, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying before God and the Holy Spirit. My conscience bears witness that what I'm saying is true. I love you guys so much, so much that I have to say this. And I'd be willing that anything happened to me if it meant your salvation. Now, let's just pause there for a second. I want to get to this statement he makes in verse 3. Uh, I could wish that I myself were accursed, anathema from Christ for the sake of my brother's. Just thinking about verses 1 and 2, though, for a moment. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I think uh, very few of us could make a statement like that concerning any lost person or people or people group that we can think of. I said this, maybe it was on Friday morning at men's Bible study. Um, Evangelism is almost dead in the Christian church in America. We pay people who are trained to go to other places and share the gospel where there is none, or to plant churches, or for some of them just to be pastors of churches in other places, which is certainly necessary. But evangelism, sharing the gospel with the people that live near you, Imagine that great white throne judgment, all the sheep and goats are separated, and, and all of us were, were sent over here to the sheep side, and we all make our way over to the sheep side. This is all the elect, and boy, we get to see all of our friends, and all the, all, everybody from church, it's going to be amazing, and all the saints that went before us lined up, and we're all excited about what eternity has in store for us. And then you look across the way to the other line, which is getting longer and longer and longer and longer as you look at it, and you see the faces of all of your neighbors that you've ever lived next door to on both sides and behind you, and everyone who sat in a cubicle near you over the course of your entire work life, and your old boss, and your old employee, and your nephew, and your grandmother, and... That per, your mailman, or the UPS guy who came to your house all the time, or fill in the blank, all those people over there who you know now, today, 
and who know you now today, can you imagine the sound of one of those voices echoing across the distance saying, you knew about this moment? You knew about this and you didn't tell me? You and I, we ate 90 pounds of grilled food together over the course of our lives, and you never said this once to me? Do we feel like this? Oh, I'm in great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart that people out there don't know Christ. That people out there, that people near me, my neighbors, whoever lives in that house right there, doesn't know Christ. That's how Paul felt. And it's true he felt that way because, we're going to get to this in a moment, because of who Israel was in the story of redemptive history. It's true he felt that way because of his deep ethnic connection to them by virtue of their almost perpetual persecution over the course of their existence. And we, in large measure, don't share that level of depth of relationship with people we don't know, like Paul would have uh, in this context. But the real reason he felt that way goes far beyond their shared heritage or the fact that they had exposure to these truths in the covenants and all this list we're going to get to uh, in, in the next couple of verses. The real reason he felt this way is because he knew Christ and the power of salvation. Because Paul knew his own sinfulness and what it deserved and what it meant to be saved by faith alone. His love for God, far more than his love for Israel, compels him to feel anguish and sorrow in his heart because of their being cut off. It's his love for God. And we share that, right? You don't need to be ethnically related to anybody to have this much sorrow in your heart that they're hell-bound. Let's pay attention to the details here. Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ's sake, uh, excuse me, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, this verse has caused a lot of controversy. Uh, You can read 10 commentaries and get 11 opinions on what Paul is saying here. Um, And I I don't want to spend the time detailing all of those. I do want to say a couple things. Paul is not saying, Paul is not saying that I would give up my salvation if it meant the salvation of other people. Maybe you've heard that before. And maybe a surface read of this makes you think that that's what he's saying. He is not saying... I would go to hell if it meant that the rest of Israel could go to heaven. There's a couple reasons why I don't think he's saying that. I'll give you two. One is theological and the other one is, is grammatical. Theologically speaking, and you'll, you'll notice this as we go through the notes, I owe this to Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you've read his commentary or his sermons on Romans, you'll, you'll understand where, where he's coming from and why I agree. He says, no true Christian could ever say that. Anyone who is in Christ could never say, I wish that I weren't. You just can't say that. You can't. As a Christian, as someone who understands the weightiness of sin and the eternality and and terror of hell and the glory of God in Christ Jesus and what it will mean to be with him forever, you could not utter those words as a true Christian. I would rather lose my relationship with Christ. I want nothing to do with him 
for other people. That is, Paul nowhere says anything close to this. In fact, everywhere else where he talks about people who don't know Christ, he talks about it's the power of Christ in him that compels him to minister to them and feel anxious for them and to come to them and to witness to them. Paul never elsewhere even alludes to a statement like, I don't want Jesus anymore for you. Rather, he says, I need a lot more of Christ for your sake everywhere else. So theologically speaking, I I agree with Lloyd-Jones on this. Uh, It's just not possible. A Christian cannot say, I would rather hate Christ. By the way, there is no loving Christ apart from him. There is no desiring Christ apart from him. There is no communion with Christ apart from him. There is no uh, warm feelings towards Christ apart from him. There is only enmity with Christ apart from him. And no true Christian could ever desire that experience again. And technically, or grammatically, I would say, what Paul says here is, I could wish. He doesn't say, I wish. Paul nowhere says, I wish that I were accursed from, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He says, I want you to know that so serious is my desire that you Israelites be saved, that if it were possible to make this wish, which it's not, that's how far I would go. But Paul is not saying, I actually wish. It's like Paul is getting ready, he's getting ready to cross over this line uh, 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 across which there's no return. He's getting ready to cross it, and as he starts, I wish, oh, no, 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 I don't wish, but I could wish that that's how far I would go for, for you all whom I love. He's being held back. It's the impossibility of the thing suggested. It's simply not possible. And because, because Paul knows that he can't lose his salvation, how do the end chapter eight? Nothing, not even my own wish can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He's simply saying, I could go that far if it were a real thing. Dr. Olson. That Paul's suggesting that somebody needs to be a substitute that, to, be, uh, to be sacrificed that some these others might be forgiven. That's already been done. There's no other savior Absolutely. So he's just, it is very hypothetical, but he knows it's an impossibility because there's already a Savior, so he doesn't need to be the Savior. That's a, that's a fantastic point, Dr. Olson. Thank you for saying that. Paul is, no one, is not atoning for anybody by being cut off or otherwise. Uh, turn back with me to Exodus chapter 32. Uh, we'll get here in about, I don't know, a couple years in morning worship. Let's see how it goes. In Exodus chapter 32, Israel, whom we're about, to, we're about to read about, the eightfold benefit of being an Israelite according to the flesh, almost all of it takes place here in Exodus. Almost all of what he says takes place in Exodus. Seven out of the eight uh, points he's about to make. So hold on to that. Exodus 32, Moses goes up on the mountain. The people get bored. Where's Moses? We don't know. Let's make us a calf. Uh, we've talked about this before. We'll get to it again later. Uh, obviously, God is unpleased with this. Uh, he turns to Moses and says, go down your people. I love the way the Lord does that in verse 7. Remember, I brought my people up, and then they, they act foolish, and he's like, Moses, go your people. I do this with my wife all the time. I'm like, your son today, let me tell you what your son did. 
right? And then as soon as he does something cute, I'm like, oh, did you see what my, my daughter did? Like, look at, you know, and that's almost what God's doing here. He's like, your people, Moses, uh, they're definitely yours. Go down there because I'm going to kill them all. And so Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, doesn't he? And Moses' intercession is not rooted in his great love for them. In fact, some of the language Moses uses about the Israelites is it borders on, on hilarious. Um, I, I was teaching a Sunday school class many, many years ago, maybe eight or ten years ago, uh, on the Pentateuch. I don't remember what book it was in. It's probably in Exodus, or maybe it was Numbers. And um, it was Mother's Day. And I showed up at church that morning, and I thought, oh, no, I forgot. It's Mother's Day. And I'm teaching this, you know, kind of dry passage from numbers, like they're wandering around in the desert. Like, how am I going to make this connection? I got to say something to all the moms here. And it's the, it happened to be the passage, God and his providence. It's the passage where Moses goes, am I their nursing mother that I should carry them around the wilderness all these 40 years? I thought, brilliant. There's the Mother's Day connection right there. Uh, <laughs> Moses is clearly, uh, he, he's not over the moon with these people. They've caused him a ton of trouble. And so his pleading, his interceding before God uh, in verses 31 and 32 has, uh, or earlier in the chapter, has less to do with them and more to do with the character of God. He says, God, don't forget your promises. Don't forget your covenant. Don't forget your reputation. You brought them out and told Pharaoh that you were bringing them to the promised land. You have to do it. And all the nations in the promised land, they're going to laugh at you and say you weren't able to take over from them. It's your reputation, God. That's how he pleads. Now listen to what happens. In verse 30 of Exodus 32, the next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, and then listen to what he says here, this parenthesis, but if not, blot me out of your book that you have written. Very similar Whoever has sinned against me, the Lord says, I will blot out of my book. In other words, Moses, that's impossible. It wasn't you, but the people who sinned are going to be punished for it. Now go back down and I'll go with you. Okay. So we see some of this in scripture. The people of God have a great love for uh, the character of God, the promises of God, and the people to whom God has made promises. So... Paul is passionately concerned about the salvation of his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, he says in verse 3. And then he lists off rapid fire in verses 4 and 5, this eightfold benefit of being an Israelite according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong adoption, glory, covenants, the law, worship, promises, the patriarchs, and Christ. The greatest tragedy ever written. Shakespeare couldn't make this up. Thousands of years of fellowship with God, the covenant promises being made, the giving of the law, understanding what the law was and why it was given, their adoption, not their spiritual adoption as you and I experience in our salvation, but their actual adoption as the children of God. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God says to Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let Israel, my son, go, that he might come out to this place to worship me. And so this adoption is God's calling them to himself to be his special people, his particular people. The glory of God dwelled with Israel for all of those years, the Shekinah glory. 
the pillar of cloud that led them by day and the pillar of fire by night that moved them from place to place, that filled the tent, that filled the holy of holies in the temple, that protected them against their enemies. They had all of this. They, they got to see it. The glory of God. All the covenants were made in the context of Israel's existence as an adopted nation to God. The law was given to show them their sin and their need for atonement and forgiveness. The ordinances of God, the worship, they understood how holy he was and just what it took to approach him. They, in other words, they had the book of Leviticus that says there's no way you can come close to God if it's not for him offering atonement for you. They had all of these things. Every promise made throughout Scripture, the patriarchs, all the people that we have Moses, we have Abraham as our father. They had all of this stuff, and even Christ by the flesh, according to the flesh, from their race, think about the genealogies in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, which clearly take him back through the, the nation of Israel, back to Abraham, and in Luke, all the way back to Adam. They have Christ by the flesh. What does John 1, 14, or John 1, 11 tell us? He came to his own, his own people, the Jewish people. Think about what Jesus says. He says it himself in Matthew chapter 15. Uh, in Matthew 15, verse 24, Jesus says, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He didn't cross any borders. He didn't go anywhere else. He came to Israel. He proclaimed the kingdom of God to Israel. Even what was written over his head by Pilate, the king of the Jews. It's one of those moments in scripture where someone speaks better than they know. They say, don't, don't say he's the king of the Jews. Say he called himself the king of the Jews. Pilate said, I said what I said. It's the greatest tragedy ever written. They had access to all this. Paul, in other words, hear him starting to answer the problem. He's starting to answer the question that's been asked. Whoa, Paul, what do you mean there's no separation from the love of God? What do you mean all things work together for good? What do you mean circumcision doesn't mean anything? What do you mean the law doesn't save us? What are you talking about? And he says, pump the brakes. You guys had everything given to you. This is the definition of silver spoon. The gospel was brought to your lips on a silver spoon. That's what he's saying. Before I go any further, you guys have had access to it all. Now, what Paul says here in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, if we are faithfully raising our families in the fear and nurture of the Lord, we can say all of these things to our children. You have the sign of the covenant applied to you. You experience the true worship of God. You've heard about the covenants and the promises of God. And by faith, Abraham is your patriarch, just like he is the Israelites' patriarch. And Christ came for you. We can say all of these things contextualized to our circumstances, to our own children. And we should. We should be holding this out before them. We should be holding these truths out before them that they might lay hold of them, that the silver spoon might come to their lips and they might taste and see that the Lord is good. Listen to what Paul goes on to say. Excuse me, point number two there in this section. Boy, it's just no wonder Paul is grieved. 
It's no wonder. Uh, John 1.11. He came to his own. That was the, that's the qualification of him being Jewish. What's the rest of the verse say? John 1.11. What is it? His own did not receive him. <laughs> How sad. How tragic. How tragic. He came to his own. They didn't want him. Jesus in Matthew 23 stands over the city of Jerusalem. Do you remember this? And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times will I have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? But in keeping with Paul's theology here, Jesus doesn't say, but I didn't have a chance. What does he say? You were not willing because you didn't know the day of your visitation. He came to them. He came to them, and Paul is grieved over it. But don't miss this. This is why I made the statement earlier, which uh, I hope was a bit provocative. Paul's um, anguish and his expression of grief and his five-fold seriousness with which he begins this part of Scripture is not principally rooted in his relationship to an ethnic people or his love for them. After saying all of this, after lamenting the reality of their having rejected the Messiah, after telling them about everything they had access to in the, in the Old Testament, he ends by praising Christ because he is preeminent in Paul's theology. To, him, uh, to them belong the patriots, pa excuse me, not the patriots, nobody cares about them. Sorry. Verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. He says, Amen. He ends this terrible paragraph concerning the tragedy of Israel's rejection of the one they should have seen and known as theirs by blessing Christ as God overall. He makes that really important link there, Christ who is God. He doesn't say Christ who came from the Father, Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Forever, That's, that goes two directions, by the way. Paul loves Christ, and it exceeds his love for his kinsmen. Let's move on to verses six and seven. Uh, this is we need to define our terms. So the, the question <clears throat> that's been posed to Paul in his mind from this imaginary person standing on the sidelines, observing his, uh, his writing, uh, entering the debate, uh, says, well, hold on a second. God made promises to Israel. I, it's a, you want to talk about the promises and the covenants and the adoption and the worship and the patriarchs. Those are all Israel things, Right? I mean, clearly, the Old Testament, it's about Israel. It's about God's relationship with the nation. And Paul says, hold on. God's word has not failed. You're telling me God's word has failed because all of these things were given to the people of Israel. You want to say to me, ah, I got you, Paul. In verse 5 and 4, you just told me that they had adoption and covenants and promises and law and glory and worship and all those things. I knew it. I knew I was right. God has failed because he gave all that stuff to Israel. And Paul says, no, no, no. God's word has not failed because who's Israel? Who's really Israel? 
That's right. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Uh, God's word has not failed, and we're not talking about Israel, the ethnic, national, theocratic people group. We're talking about the people of God throughout the ages. Uh, Jump ahead uh, to chapter 11 of Romans. You'll see there in your notes, point two, uh, verses two and seven. (laughs) Again, I ask, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So clearly he's not rejected actual Israelites in total. And God has not rejected his people, which ones? Whom he foreknew. Not who have a missing piece of flesh, or not who have a certain kind of DNA, but the ones that he foreknew. It's always been a remnant within the nation. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain. Israel, as you think about it, Israel as you're talking about it, my imaginary friend. Israel, the nation, failed to obtain what it was seeking, but the elect found it. Because God has always kept his promises to his people, the people within the people. Galatians chapter 3 and 4 say much the same thing, and for time's sake, we won't go there. Who are the children of Abraham? Those of faith. Those of us who have faith call Abraham our father. Uh, And that's what Paul says elsewhere in his writings. (laughs) So who are we really talking about? We're talking about those God predestined. The elect, that's what he's been dealing with in the previous chapter to some degree, and what he'll continue to deal with here in chapter 9, especially as he gets into Jacob and Esau and Ishmael and Isaac here in the next couple of minutes. And what are we really talking about? So it's not just who. You're you're telling me that God's word has failed because of uh, your definition of what Israel is and who Israel is, but The other question that needs to be answered is, what are we talking about? When you say God's word has failed, the word of God has failed, what do you mean the word of God? Because the word of God in this this context, as Paul means it here, is his redemptive promises to bless Israel through the Messiah. That's always been the key. That's always been the promise. It's always been, think again about Galatians, it's always been the offspring, singular, who is Christ. It's always been the seed of the woman, singular, who is Christ. It's always been the son of David, singular, who is Christ. None of the covenant promises, none of the blessings, none of the the, uh, atoning foreshadowing of the Old Testament is applied to Israel as a blessing apart from Messiah. And that's Jesus. And so the word of God can't possibly have failed because the word of God always pointed to Christ. It's not as though the word of God has failed. And what Paul doesn't say here, but he could have, it's you don't understand how those promises are to be laid hold of in Christ. Go back to chapter 8. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then he adds this really important qualifier in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also graciously with him give us all things? Oh, there's no all things apart from Christ. I'm convinced that none of these things, angels and demons and life and death and so on and so forth, can separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no experiencing the love of God apart from Christ Jesus our Lord. So the word of God has always been about Christ. All the promises and covenants and and ordinances and the worship and all these things have always been pointing Israel to Christ. And so the person asking this question, the imaginary friend over here on the sideline is saying, yeah, but Israel is like, that's not what you think it is. Yeah, but the promises, and who are they talking about? It's always about Christ. And so he, Paul here is helping uh, the readers of his letter and us to understand that we need to be paying attention to the details, defining our terms as far as uh, Israel and the word of God, the promises of God. Now look with me here uh, at this last section. We've got just a few minutes left, and I think we'll get through it just fine. Um, Verse 7b, after saying, not all the children of Abraham, excuse me, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, speaking of physical descendants there, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Through Isaac. Isaac is the child of? mm -hmm, The child of promise. I love how, what Paul does here. So, so far, he's been telling uh, our friend, um, you're, you've misunderstood what Israel means. You're not reading your Old Testament very well. You've misunderstood uh, what the Word of God has been pointing to. You're definitely not reading your Old Testament very well. Uh, you've missed all of the benefits that you have as an Israelite. As an Israelite, clearly, you're not paying attention to what your Old Testament is teaching you. So let's go to the Old Testament. Uh, I want to show you two examples here directly from the book that you're arguing for that this has always been the way God's operated in redemptive history. It's always been like this. From the earliest stages of God's relationship to the patriarchs, you don't go much further back than Abraham, okay? When we talk about patriarchs, nobody in, 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 in Jewish tradition or, or in Israel's history talked about Adam as a patriarch or Enoch as a patriarch or even Noah as a patriarch. The patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the, the sons of Jacob, right? Those are the patriarchs. You can't go any further back than Abraham, in other words, which is why that's how Matthew starts his gospel, okay? So he says, let's go all the way back to the first patriarch and his kids, From the very first one, the very first child born to the covenant family of Abraham, God started delineating between those who were physical descendants and those who were descendants of the promise. From the very beginning. Ishmael, at 13 years old, what did he get along with his dad? Circumcision. He had the sign of being in the covenant community applied to him. All of the promises were his. The adoption was his. The glory of God was his. The covenants were his. The worship was his. Abraham, don't forget, was an altar builder. He was going all over the place building altars with his family to worship God every time they settled in a new place. He had all of the things requisite to faith. And then along comes Isaac who also has the sign of the covenant applied to him. And he's the child of promise. Because, as we'll come to see here in just a moment, so that way God's purpose of election might continue. God immediately begins delineating between those who are uh, of flesh and promise. Again, it's a question for our friend over here. Is God dealing with people according to the flesh or according to his promises? 
It's always been according to his promises. Uh, The promise comes from God. Verse 7, God speaking, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 9, God speaking, about this time next year I will return, Sarah will have a son, and that's Isaac. So Ishmael and Isaac show our friend over here that God has always been operating this way in the course of redemptive history. He's not failing to keep his word. He's not cutting people who shouldn't be cut off, off. God is being faithful to his word. Look at example number two, uh, verses 10 through uh, 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, patriarch, here we go, he's for all of us, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Example number two, this is the Old Testament pattern of God dealing with Israel. It's his sovereignty in election versus the work of man in their own salvation. The person who argues against Romans 1 through 8 is the person who thinks that works equal fellowship with God. That's it. The person who argues with Romans 1 through 8, this character who shows up on the scene in between verse 39 of chapter 8 and verse 1 of chapter 9, this person denies God's sovereignty and election and relies on his own works and salvation. And he says, hold on, I've got the law and I'm keeping it. And now you're telling me that doesn't matter. I've got circumcision and now you're telling me that doesn't matter. I've got heritage, ethnic heritage. You're telling me that that doesn't matter. I had all the promises and you're telling me that they don't matter. And Paul says, no, 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 no. They all point to something. And you've said that he doesn't matter. God's word has not failed. Not one word has fallen to the ground. Westminster Shorter Catechism question 20, did God leave all mankind in in a state of sin and misery? Remember mankind, we all fell in Adam, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity. All those descending from him by ordinary generations sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. All of us, except for one, Ordinary generations, right? That's that whole Holy Spirit thing we dealt with last Sunday evening. All of us fell in Adam. And did God leave us there? God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, in order that the purpose of election might continue, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. That's what Paul's saying. God's purpose, out of his mere good pleasure. I I mentioned earlier this morning that one of the sort of subcategories that's dealt with is God's free will. God's free will in his decree. As God has the freedom to choose to do whatever he will do with whomever he will do it. And Paul goes on to deal with that here in these coming chapters, doesn't he? 
God's sovereignty and election, that it might continue. That way, no one can say that there's injustice on God's part. I'll let somebody deal with that next week. He said, before they were born, the older will serve the younger, and Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It had nothing to do with them. It had everything to do with him. Now, this is, I'll say this before I get to my summary kind of conclusion here, because we've got a, a minute to do it. This is the, and I think I mentioned this in the new members class last weekend, one of the biggest grievances with the Reformed position on God's sovereignty and election is the notion that, uh, that it's unjust, which is what Paul's going to get to, that it's unfair, that you've got this whole mass of humanity sort of hanging out in limbo as though we were all neutral, and God goes and takes some and rejects others. Is that the picture that Scripture paints about election, about God's sovereign predestining of his people? No, rather, those doors right there are the gates of hell, and they're bottlenecked with every human being that's ever lived, rushing headlong that way, uh, uh, railing against God and cursing him the whole way there. That's our natural state in sin. Every person who has ever been born and ever will be born is running headlong and banging on the gates of hell to get in so long as it means I'm away from God. That's what they want. That's what everyone wants. And rather than God coming to a mass of, of humanity kind of treading water in the ocean and saving those that he can, and the other ones, oh, they just have to drown because there's no room on the boat for them, God goes and sends his son to stand at the gate of hell. He descended into hell in order to pluck people like brands from the fire out of his mercy and grace and bring them into a state of salvation by a redeemer. That's a totally different picture. It is all God's love and mercy that brings people out of damnation and into salvation. It is none of this, you know, people, don't, people who go to hell don't deserve to go there. We all do. It's about, it's, it's about asking the wrong question, isn't it? You ever catch this in Scripture? Uh, have you heard somebody say this before? How does God, how does a just God commend Israel to go into the promised land and wipe out seven nations? Total genocide. Kill them all. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Oh, the God of the Old Testament, I don't know about him. I don't want anything to do with a God like that. He sounds pretty mean. I mean, what did the Hittites and Perizzites, I mean, the poor Jibbisites, what were they doing just sitting around cooking food and here come the Israelites to kill them? What sort of God would condone mass genocide of an entire populace of, of the land? What's the problem with that logic? They were wicked. Yeah. Craig, what do you want to say? The Baptist pastors who always did say in the Old Testament days, he talked about you know that mind that they were that his people were in Egypt. All, all of God's people were in Egypt for hundreds of years, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. And and one of the reasons God gave for this was that the the sins of the people that he was going to judge were not fully you know, like his cup of wrath was filling yeah. over time. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, his time's a little different than ours, right? And so you have these hundreds of years building up of depravity, people getting worse and worse and worse, and then God brings the judgment in his time frame, mm -hmm. right? And so the slaughtering of these people was not an action of men 
deciding to do something. It was God's using them to bring about a just judgment of sin that was accumulating over time, not just, you know, right. one sin. It was many. And what you're saying, though, that what you're saying, you're basically airing Habakkuk's grievance against God. The Babylonians? You're going to use wicked people to judge us? Right? That's the same kind of problem that he has over it. But let me, let me say it this way. The problem with the question, how can God condone the genocide of all the inhabitants of the land of, of Palestine prior to their taking possession of it? The problem with that question is it's the wrong question. That's a man-centered question that says, but all those people. The real question is why in the world did God let any of the Israelites live? That's the real question. Why did God let any of these Israelites live? Good grief. From minute one, oh, the Red Sea, walking across a sea on dry land? I mean, can you imagine such a thing? Walls of water on both sides, little kids running down and waving their fingers through the water and seeing if they could grab a fish that came close to the edge. And they get to the other side and all of Egypt's army is crushed under the weight of the, of the water as it returns to its place. And they sing and dance and have this joyful celebration. The horse and rider thrown into the sea and God has rescued us and saved us. And they walk two days in the desert and say, I wish we were back in Egypt. This water doesn't taste good. And I don't like bread. You're kidding, right? And God let any of them live? That's the real question. And the answer is, God is merciful. And out of his mere good pleasure, he entered into a covenant of grace with those that he had elected for redemption to bring them out of a state of sin and misery and to keep them for himself forever. We've got to ask the right questions. This fellow who shows up in chapter 9 is asking the wrong questions, and Paul is trying to point him in the right direction uh, by defining his terms exposing the hypocrisy of the, of the question even. You've got all this stuff and you missed it. Uh, and then pointing them to the Old Testament to show that this has always been the way. Okay, the, let's uh, work through these summary points real quick. Two minutes. It has always been God's plan to save those whom he predestined, justified, and glorified. There is no failing on God's part. Chapter 9, verse 6. Joshua 24, 13. Not one word of God has fallen to the ground. It'll say in your Bible, has failed. That word failed is the word for fall to the ground. Not one of God's words has been tripped up, has been caused to stop. None of them have. Secondly, and this is really important, what Paul is doing is he is not outlining for us the realities of the new covenant. He is outlining for us the realities of the one covenant of grace. There's one covenant of grace that began in Genesis 3, verse 15, and extends throughout all history future. And God has, or excuse me, Paul here is explaining the realities of the one covenant of grace in its various Old Testament administrations through Abraham and Moses and David and so forth. But this has always been God's plan, which is why, this is super important now, the fact that it's one covenant of grace is why later Paul can say those of faith call Abraham their father. Because the promises made to Abraham in the covenant of grace 
are ours by faith now. The scriptures foreseeing that, that, that the gospel would be preached to the Gentiles said that these promises are for us. This is really important. The distinction here, uh, that I, I don't want to overdo this and, and make too much of it, but it's very important we understand that the Bible's definition of Israel, the Israel of God, as Paul says in Romans chapter, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 6, has always been the children of promise. It's the children of promise. Again, we in Christ, let's bring this to ourselves for a minute, put it on our own table here and look at it for a second. We in Christ have adoption. In Christ, we've been adopted as sons and daughters. We have the glory of God shining full in whose face? Jesus Christ. We have the covenants. All of the promises that God has made to his people are to us because we are his people. We have the law. We understand why God gave the law, to show us our great need for a Savior, to point us to Christ, our depravity, our need for Christ, and to show us how to live, that we might live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We have worship in spirit and in truth, not in a temple, not on a mountainside, but in the spirit. We have all the promises of the Bible. They find their yes and their amen in who? Christ, and he's ours. We have the patriarchs, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Bill, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Tim, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Stephen, and so forth. They're our patriarchs by faith. And most importantly, which is the last thing Paul says to this guy, this imaginary questioner, Christ. He's ours by faith. He's ours by faith, not by flesh, but by faith. That's far more significant, far more important. It's far more important that we understand that Christ is ours by faith. Because if we attach our relationship to God to anything other than faith, then just like this guy, we're going to have a problem. Nothing else will keep us secured to him. And so we have Christ by faith. Okay. Romans chapter 9, this is part 1 next week. Uh, I'm not sure who's up on the list to teach, uh, but you'll go through the rest of chapter 9. It's a lot, and I probably could have gone through verse 18, but we're already six minutes over, and we barely got there, so I'm glad I didn't. Um, let me pray and conclude our time so we can end the recording and free you up to uh, uh, mill about and, and discuss and fellowship. There's coffee and such in the foyer here, the fellowship hall. And if you have kids in Sunday school, please collect them so those teachers can have a chance to take a break as well between services. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this portion of scripture and this great letter by this great apostle which show us how Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. Every promise, every administration of your covenant, every glimpse of your glory, they all point us to him, and he is ours, and if we are his, then we have all things in Christ Jesus, and nothing can separate us from your love for us and him. So help us to apprehend these truths, to teach them to our children and grandchildren, to lay hold of them by faith, Lord, and to walk uprightly before you 
all the days of our lives. We ask that you'd bless this time in between services. Help us to prepare our hearts for worship, to prepare the hearts of our children for worship. Lord, would you help us to delight in the preaching of your word. Cause the words that we speak in our songs and our confession of faith to be true in our hearts, Lord. And would you receive our worship as a sweet-smelling aroma. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.